Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Jill Winebanks, Joyce Fans, Barb McQuaid, and me, Kimberly Atkins Store. You know, it's the perfect time to get your Hashtag Sisters in Law merch. You know, the weather's warming up soon. We have t shirts, which are my favorite, but we also have hoodies if you live in colder climes, or you can get our new mug. Everybody needs a cup of coffee or tea every morning. So head to politicon.com slash merch or just click the link in our show notes today. But now on to the show. We're going to be discussing Alabama's IVF ruling, the perjury case against the informant uh, against the de- now debunked case, uh, part of the debunked case against Hunter Biden, and a ruling in Texas keeping a black student out of school because of his hair. But before we dive into all that, you know, I spent um, this week in uh, Newton, Massachusetts at Boston College Law School uh, for a fellowship, which included spending some time with the students, doing office hours with them and talking with them. And I was really nervous about it. You know, I'm not an educator and and I don't have a long history of mentoring uh, law students in particular. So since the three of you are such experts in it, I thought I should have asked you beforehand, but I want to ask you now, what are some of your tips when it comes to educating and mentoring the lawyers of the future. How about you, Joyce? You know, this is one of my favorite parts of my job um, working at the University of Alabama Law School. And my policy is to keep an open door even for folks who aren't my students. And I had a great meeting with one young woman yesterday. And, And what I have learned is this is incredibly more valuable for me than it is for them because it gives me faith in the future. I mean, if our future is in the hand of these young law students, then we are are really doing well. I try to listen to them and hear what they want. And something that I'm learning is that this generation thinks much more broadly and out of the box than my generation did. You know, in law school, I knew I was going to go to a firm. There might be another couple of options, but it was mostly I was going to practice law. And these students come to you with so many ideas about how they want to use your talents The great thing about being old and having, I'm going to date myself now, having a big Rolodex is that you can connect (laughs) them with the people that they need to make their dreams come true. And so I often view that as my role. Who can I connect them with? How can I encourage them not to do what they think they ought to do or what their parents think they ought to do, but to do what they're passionate about and and really to be the change that, that they want to see in the world? So, um, You know, Kim, I'm glad you got to do it for a week. I bet that these folks will stick around with you. I got an email yesterday from one of my students from six years ago catching me up on what she's doing. And it's just great. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, I have to say I got a ton out of it. And part of that, Joyce, you're exactly right, which is a hope for the future is what I walked away with. What about you, Jill? What's your advice? Well, I have had experience mentoring high school students, the uh, mock trial team in Milwaukee for my goddaughter, Um, a high school student I met when I was doing career and technical education for Chicago Public Schools, who is now not only a college graduate, but a father of three and a paralegal. Um, And it's, I think, partly what Joyce said, listen. You can only mentor if you listen to what they're really asking you about. and stay in touch with them and try to keep communications going. I laughed when Joyce said her Rolodex because 
I recently was cleaning house and working with an organizer and she saw this and said, oh, that's so cool. She had actually found a Rolodex I had from, I don't know, from my days in Washington. And I said, well, if you think you could use it, take it. So she took it and then she started looking through it and she brought it back to me and said, oh my God, you have White House phone numbers in here. I can't take this. You have to save this. <laughs> so it's back in my pos possession again. Um, I think the other two things I would say about mentoring is that um, pursuing your passions, which Joyce mentioned, is really part of my important advice. Don't do necessarily what you're told or expected. Think about when you get to the office, what will your job be and will you enjoy that? And also remember that it is reciprocal, that you can learn as much from them. Um, if we get to Boston anytime soon, I have a mentee there who is now the chaplain at Tufts Hospital, and we have stayed in touch since I met her in her Girl Scout days. So she's now a chaplain and um, has her master's degree from Harvard, and it's going to be fabulous to catch up with her and to learn from her. Wow, that's amazing. Barb, what about you? Well, I agree with all the things that we heard from Joyce and Jill. I guess one thing that I would add is I have found it sometimes necessary to be very proactive in offering mentorship. With my students at the law school, I make it an assignment that they have to have coffee with me in small groups at the oh, beginning of the semester. That's so and it smart. really is a response to my own inhibitions when I was a law student, you know, um, professors would say, stop by office hours. My door is always open. But who wants to go to the office hours? They're scary, you know. And so um, I like to think I'm not scary, but, you know, there's a power imbalance between student and professor. And one thing I hear from my own children is, I don't even know what to ask. I'm not going to go in there in office hours. I have no idea what's even to ask. So I make this an assignment for students to come see me. We have coffee. We have a little, you know, coffee shop at the law school and just chat, you know, like let's get to know each other and break the ice. Where are you from? What are you about? What kind of job are you looking for? And then I, I feel like once I know them a little bit more personally, they're more inclined to come see me for advice. And I tell them how much I enjoy doing that, either um, writing letters of recommendation or talking through career uh, goals or helping, like Joyce said, to connect them with career opportunities uh, or supervise independent research, all, all other kinds of things. Um, sometimes I write letters of recommendation for students who have been out of law school for three years or five years when they're looking for their second job. And I can only yeah. do that if I know them. And so I force them to get to know me and encourage them to come back for more. And it's been wonderful for me because it has helped me to develop really nice relationships with students that I really enjoy. Oh, that's all really great advice. I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful for my time uh, at BC Law as a Rappaport Center uh, fellow. And I have to say, among the students and the faculty there, there are a lot of listeners to this podcast. So that was gratifying, too. Do you get into bed and start checking all your social media apps and suddenly realize 45 minutes have passed? If you're a nighttime doom scroller or often stressed, let Calm help you form new and healthy bedtime habits. This year, Calm is the number one app for sleep and meditation, giving you the power to calm your mind and change your life. Calm recognizes that everyone faces unique challenges in their daily lives that mental health needs differ from person to person, and that time for meditation may vary. Since self-practices are so deeply personal, Calm strives to provide content that caters to your preferences and needs. 
Their meditations cover reducing anxiety and stress, relaxation and focus, building healthy habits, and taking care of your physical well-being. They even have sleep stories with hundreds of titles to choose from, including sleep meditations and calming music that will have you drifting off to dreamland quickly and naturally. We also love their expert-led talks on topics like overcoming stress and anxiety, handling grief, improving self-esteem, caring for relationships, and more. The Calm app puts the tools you need to feel better in your back pocket. If you go to calm.com slash sisters, you'll see a special offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription with new content added every week. Stress less, sleep more, and live better with Calm. For listeners of the show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash sisters. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash sisters for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com slash sisters or look for the link in the show notes. Well, we start this week in Alabama, where, you know, we seem to start um, more often than I would like to. One of 50 states and does more than its uh, proportionate share of of damage to the rule of law. Um, But here we are again. This week, the question is whether banning in vitro fertilization is the logical outcome of the Dobbs decision, which, of course, reversed Roe versus Wade. Um, The Alabama Supreme Court seems to think so. So, Kim, we'll start with that. Um, we all know by now that the Alabama Supreme Court ruled that embryos that are used for IVF are in fact children, spawning a whole host of jokes across the internet, people talking about taking tax deductions or showing um, a carton of eggs with one broken egg in it and saying, you know, please give my family privacy in this moment of great sorrow. Um <laughs> But many Alabama providers, on a serious note, have now paused their IVF work out of concern that they could face criminal prosecution for doing it. Can you explain how we got here? Oh, gosh, I really wish I didn't have to. But yes, (laughs) I can. So Alabama passed uh, something that some conservatives have been pushing for, which is a personhood statute, which states that life begins at conception. Well, we know that in vitro fertilization uses fertilized embryos, right? They are frozen. They are kept. This is something that is done in order to, it's probably one of the most pro-life things you can think of, right? People who, for whatever reason, have difficulty conceiving on their own uh, using medical advancements in order to start their families. It is a crucial technology for so many people who want to grow their families, but it involves, guess what? Embryos after they've been fertilized which would fall under this personhood statute. And so now it makes, I mean, it makes sense for the IVF clinics to say, "Uh uh-oh, like I don't want to be suddenly facing this new liability. Can we do this at all? Is the freezing process going to be considered some sort of assault? If something goes wrong, will we be sued for, uh, you know, manslaughter? I mean, the, the, questions go on and on besides just the initial questions of personhood statutes which gets to what you were talking about Joyce like do are these 
are these embryos subject to um, custody orders? Are the these embryos do they get child support? Can you put them on your insurance if you know if one goes missing? Do you put them on milk cartons? Like it's it's just so ridiculous, <laughs> but it's not for these families who want to have children. And now if you live in Alabama, it's that much harder. I mean, it's crazy, right? The companies that transport frozen embryos have just stopped all service in the state of Alabama. That literally happened after we started taping today. It's Friday in the afternoon. Um, And, you know, it's sort of nuts when you think about how this happened. This was some families who actually had some embryos in storage damaged. And they brought um, a a lawsuit for wrongful death, a civil lawsuit charging negligence. I don't think any of those families envisioned that their lawsuit would become this vehicle for ending IVF in Alabama. I mean, that just wasn't the intent. As you say, Kim, nothing could be more pro-life. So, Jill, I think the interesting thing is that the decision seemed to catch a lot of Republicans off guard. Nikki Haley said she thought embryos were children, but then she had to walk it back. She had some gobbledygook about, well, that was my personal beliefs, but let me tell you where my campaign stands. Um, Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville's comments, which were made as he was walking out of CPAC, didn't really make very much sense. It seemed like he did not understand um, what the Alabama Supreme Court's decision meant. He said he was all for the decision and we need to have more kids which isn't really where the Supreme Court's decision landed. What do you think are the political pitfalls here for Republicans? What does the landscape look like politically? Well, those responses are, of course, laughable. The whole point of this is the exact opposite of having more kids. It is a complete opposite of what supposedly the Republicans want, which is to have more children brought into the world. Um, I think that nobody thought about the consequences going back to Hobby Lobby, which is where all this really started. And that was in 2014 when they basically created abortifacients from contraceptive pills and said that a fertilized egg was a person. And so this whole personhood thing is what we must stop. And it's not just in Alabama There's a fight going on in Arizona right now. The National Council of Jewish Women has been a co-plaintiff in stopping it to date and is optimistic maybe that they can keep it going. But personhood has consequences that no one has thought about. It has meant that a pregnant woman who was shot in the stomach was charged with murder for her child, her, her pregnancy, because she provoked the fight. These are all, you know, consequences that no one has thought about. And it's proved by Alabama, who now goes, oh, my gosh, we didn't really mean that. And so they're now trying to pass legislation that would redefine this as it has to be implanted in the uterus before it becomes a chargeable offense. So they're trying to back away from the consequences of this case. And hopefully that will work, at least in Alabama. But Alabama's not alone. You know, you got Mississippi and Arizona and a bunch of other Oklahoma that have similar things. So it's going to be a very bad consequence. And depriving people who really want children of being able to conceive when they are unable to without this in vitro fertilization is really cruel. 
Again, they're the dog that caught the bus, right? I mean, don't you think that that's the case, Kim? You know, there was an amicus brief in this case where folks pointed out that um, IVF could be compromised. But even in the opinion, in fact, in one of the concurrences, the chief justice says, well, you know, IVF is the Wild West and it needs to be regulated. And then they just jumped right into it. I mean, do you think that there will be any consequences for, for Republicans? Donald Trump has now tweeted or truthed or whatever he does, saying that Alabama should restore IVF. Do you think that they'll just write up an exception here and claim victory? I think, listen, they haven't even come up with an efficient response to the backlash of Dobbs. So no, I I don't think so. I think this is, I think this is a part of a conservative Christian movement that is pushing this. And then the greater Republican Party is sort of being dragged along and they don't know how to react to it. You know, Roy Moore was one of the people who really started this. So Alabama, again, is at the forefront of this movement. um, And he charged pregnant women with child endangerment, saying that there was a child inside them that they were endangering. So it's really bad. And there was a movie made called Birthright, a war story. And this goes back to about 2016, which forecast all of this. And it's really worth watching that movie to see what's next on the agenda after this. If you think it can't get any worse, it can. I'll post a link to that. Yeah. I mean, since you raised that, something else we should post a link to is that Heidi Prisbola at Politico has some great reporting this week talking about Christian nationalism and how Trump is actively planning with these folks, if he wins again, to have a Christian nationalist agenda, which involves imposing um, beliefs on people. I mean, this is not all Christians. This is not all evangelicals. This is the folks out on the fringes, but they are the folks who have Trump's ear. Some of them are involved in the 2025 project. And I think Heidi's reporting is well taking uh, well worth taking a look at. So we'll post that too. This is turning into the scary nightmare episode of Hashtag Sisters in Law. But Barb, let's make it more concrete. What else is at stake as the courts consider the consequences of these fetal personhood bills? I mean, once we establish or once folks in some right-wing state legislatures established that life begins at conception, then what follows from it? And and is it possible that there will be any successful challenges to those fetal personhood bills? I think so. So, uh, you know, the, the devil is in the details in all of these kinds of things. And I think that sometimes when lawmakers want to prevent things like abortion or, you know, what, what they consider here is the uh, the death, the wrongful death of children, there are all kinds of unintended consequences. It, it's just not so simple in real life. And so when medical providers are trying to give their best advice uh, to people seeking to conceive, when pe- with people who are pregnant, when people need to end a pregnancy, these laws make it impossible for doctors to give their best advice and for patients to be able to take advantage of that. So uh, it, it's just, it's a, it's a it's a failure to appreciate the practical application of the law. And so I think one extension could be criminal charges against um, people who discard these. You know, one of the routine practices in these fertility clinics is they will um, uh, harvest a large number of eggs from the mother, they will fertilize them in a lab, and they will allow them to grow, and then they test them. 
and some of them uh, have genetic genetic abnormalities. Those are discarded. The ones that are genetically healthy are implanted in the uterus of either the mother or a surrogate mother to in hopes of uh, giving birth to a healthy child. If you can't dispose of the uh, the extras, then does that mean somebody has to give birth to 30 of these eggs or however many there were? I mean, it's why all these clinics are shutting down because it is a routine part of the practice to discard the extras and to discard those with genetic abnormalities. It, the, the system just doesn't work if every one of the eggs that gets harvested has to end up being implanted in someone's uh, uterus. And so it's just uh, it, it's just a failure to understand the big picture. Um, but I think one of the things that's so telling, Joyce, you wrote a really good summary of this case in your Substack. And if people aren't reading Joyce's Civil Discourse Substack, you're doing it wrong. Um, and I'll point to you, Alabama girl, who refers to her home state as Talabama. Um, your words, not mine. I, I didn't refer to it that way. I just said that some people were. Oh, are. some people. Some, what are you, <laughs> Donald Trump, my friend Jim? Yeah, some, some people are saying. Well, um, are you. You quote Justice uh, Tom Parker here, who says in his concurring opinion, quote, human life cannot be wrongfully destroyed without incurring the wrath of a holy God who views the destruction of his image as an affront to himself. Now, let me say, lest anyone uh, uh, be skeptical of my motives here, I am a practicing Christian, and I I am... um, personally, not one who's had an abortion or or likes to think I would, but who knows under what circumstances you might find yourself, right? You have to uh, uh, think about the circumstances of everyone. But I find this incredibly offensive because not everyone in our country is Christian, and it is a violation of our First Amendment to favor one religion over another. So Jill mentioned lawsuits by Jewish women. In the Jewish faith, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, my Jewish sisters, but life begins not at conception, but at birth. And in the Muslim faith tradition, life begins not at conception, but at ensoulment, which occurs typically uh, you know, somewhere dur- during the pregnancy. There are people who are agnostic, who are atheists. All of those people are entitled to have their religious beliefs or non-beliefs honored. And so to prefer Christian values over all others is an absolute violation of the First Amendment. So I think we will see successful challenges based on religions that are non-Christian. Thank you for saying that, Barb. It is really offensive to me to read the Bible being quoted and 16th and century, 17th century things being relied upon. We are now in 2024, and it's time to deal with what is real now, what is science now. And it, it, it really, I mean, it offends me that under God was added to the Pledge of Allegiance when I was in grade school. I've never so heard imagine, you say that before, Jill. Well, I, now you know. <laughs> now you know. It happened while I was in, you know, I was I, no, old I'm, enough to I'm, be I'm aware of it. I'm being a little I'm facetious. you because, I mean, oh, I, I, I wait, love I that you're offended by this. And wait, Jill, did you did you work on the Watergate case? Oh, I don't know. I have to I have to look that up. My memory's not what it should be, I guess. But can I just add one thing too? As some, I also consider myself a Christian, and I believe that the message of Christ would not be a message saying that women are subordinate to everyone else, including embryos. 
which is exactly what these laws do. They forget the life of the human who is carrying these embryos or who wants to carry these embryos and just going through all sort of contortions about it. So I don't think that that's a Christian message at all. I love y'all so much. You are just giving me life right now. I mean, isn't, isn't that one of the reasons this country was founded? Pilgrims and others fleeing religious oppression in Europe, coming here so that they could live their lives in their own ways. You know, I mean, it's like you are not hurting anyone else if you practice your own beliefs, where your beliefs knock heads with somebody else's practice of their beliefs, then society has to work that out. But it seems ironic to me, and sometimes um, I think irony verges on um, being hypocritical, but it seems ironic to me that the people who spend so much time talking about what the founding fathers intended would stray so far from this foundational notion that we should not have an American religion. We don't have a state religion like many European or Scandinavian countries do. We just don't. That's not our tradition. And to me, that's what this case, I was going to say borders on. It's not really what it borders on. It's what it is. If you read this opinion, which I think refers to um Bible verses on at least three occasions refers to God more than 40 times. I mean, not, you know, talking about God, but invoking God's name and the wrath of God, as, as Barb pointed out. It's just crazy talk. Um, but Barb, you will be happy to know that you are actually in alignment with one of Alabama's senators. Um, there are, are now um, suggested bills that will fix this problem in both the Alabama House and the Senate. And I'm just going to read to you what this one Alabama senator, Tim Melson, said to explain why they needed a bill that would make it okay for IVF to continue. Uh, The senator said, when a lady is two or three successful pregnancies and these are left over, it's just time to make sure that they aren't penalized for that success. Um, so based on that interesting comment, the Alab- Kim, the look on your face right now is priceless, girl. Um, but the Alabama legislature is moving forward. I mean, this makes me happy for the families and who've got so much into this. And, and the legislature is sort of cobbling together um, this bill that will exclude IVF from the rule that life begins at conception. I'm wondering if by creating that exception, they might not be opening the door to other exceptions. What do y'all think? Am I too optimistic for a change? It's Alabama, Joyce. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but hear me out on this. I mean, it seems to me that if you can say, you know, except for IVF, maybe you could also say, and by the way, we also want to guarantee with certainty that a woman who's experiencing a tubal pregnancy and who will die if she doesn't get medical care, that she's entitled to that. You know, because right now it's the uncertainty around the law, not the law itself, but the uncertainty that is keeping women from getting medical care when necessary. If we can create this life-giving access for uh, exception for IVF, why can't we have a life-giving exception for these women who are in medical emergencies to preserve their fertility? It seems very logical to me. What's wrong with that? You're applying logic to an agenda that doesn't care about logic. I think that's the problem. We can't, I, I, I just can't rely that the the goodwill of people will come through when I've seen just what, I mean, Dobbs is the result of a concerted effort to strip women of their rights. So I just, I, I just, I can't help but remain out on my ledge. So I, I agree with Kim, but here, you know, here's the problem with, um, with that kind of thinking. 
so often we have people who are, um, you know, all or nothing on issues. You know, when it comes to life, all abortion is bad and must be eliminated, you know, these heartbeat laws and everything. And now we're going back to, you know, pre-womb, even in the fertility lab. It it eliminates the ability to have common sense and compromise. If it's all about, you know, political purity, it's all about 100, same with gun rights. We see it, you know, any restriction on gun rights is just a slippery slope to taking away all of our gun rights. No, you know, we need to have common sense and logic if we are going to advance American society and human progress. And so it's all part of this polarization between right and left. Uh, The the other side's the enemy and they're all bad and you got to be all in with us or else you're bad. And it leaves no room for moderation, common sense or logic. Well, here's my challenge to Alabama's lawmakers, Democrats and Republicans. Do right by women here. You've got the opportunity to protect our health, our fertility, our ability to have families. Do it all together and seize the moment. Be brave. Whether your style is fresh-faced, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. You've definitely seen it if you watch any of us on television, because we all have it on. Thrive is the one in the turquoise tube, and it's all over your socials. Thrive Cosmetics beauty products are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. They're made with clean, skin-loving ingredients, high-performance trademark formulas, and uncompromising standards. It's easy to see why their bestsellers have gone viral with thousands of five-star reviews. We love that cause is in the name. You might not have noticed it, but it's Thrive Cosmetics, and that's for a reason. Every purchase supports organizations that help communities thrive with causes like education, cancer research, and working to end homelessness. You'll feel great and look great with Thrive. I love and highly recommend Thrive's Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. And Thrive uses a flake-free tubing formula that dramatically lengthens and defines your lashes from root to tip. It looks just like lash extensions. Actually, I think it looks better than lash extensions because they look so much more natural. And they don't damage your lashes with glue. And you certainly don't have to pay the high salon prices. Plus, it lasts all day without clumping, smudging, or flaking. And it comes off so easily just with your regular cleaner. The shades are amazing and its nourishing ingredients support longer, stronger, and healthier looking lashes over time. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. And right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash sisters. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash sisters for 20% off your first order. You can also find the link to your perfect look in our show notes. Let's move from a violation of the First Amendment to something that I think threatens the very foundation of the rule of law in America. Perjury charges against a longtime FBI confidential informant blew up, or at least should have, blown up the impeachment bribery case against President Biden and maybe some of the charges being looked at against his son, Hunter. The confidential informant was the heart of that original impeachment case. 
And we no longer know what, if anything, he said is true. We don't know where he was born. And although his name sounds Russian and he speaks fluent Russian and has alleged connections to Russian intelligence operatives, he definitely has an FBI handler, American and Israeli passports, and reportedly over $6 million in liquid assets. It sounds like a bad spy story, but it's not. It's weird, but it's real. And although we briefly discussed his perjury indictment last week, his release in Las Vegas and his rearrest there and a hearing coming up on Monday got our attention again. So let's explore it a little more. And I'm going to start with you, Joyce. How long has Smirnov been giving info to the FBI and what do they say now? And do we know if his alleged lies will damage other cases and investigations? Yeah, I mean, it's such a great question, right? Smirnov was there for over a decade um, acting as a source. Presumably, he did give them some good verifiable information, but we don't really have any visibility into that and whether or not other cases might be damaged. I mean, presumably, anyone who's involved in a case where he was a witness will be scrutinizing it very carefully and maybe even filing motions to undo other convictions if he was involved. We don't really know if he was an overt or a covert witness. But right now, prosecutors are alleging that Smirnov repeatedly lied to his FBI handler um, and that he can't be trusted. And he's been indicted for making false statements and for causing FBI agents to put false information into their forms. Here's what led to our awareness of this situation. Smirnov is arrested following an international flight in Nevada. And DOJ, this is the special counsel in the Hunter Biden matter, David Weiss, former Trump appointee, Weiss's folks moved to detain Smirnov. And that's how we learn all of this information about him in the detention motion. They argued that he was a flight risk, that he needed to be detained because he had extensive contacts with Russian intelligence services and elsewhere. He lied to authorities. He said he had a very limited amount of cash on hand. Turns out he had access to $6 million, which is pretty good indication someone is planning on running when they lie about something like that. And he's also an Israeli, which is important because we don't extradite from Israel in most cases. So if he was able to get his Israeli passport and get to Israel, then we would not be able to try him in this country. Plenty of reason to hold this guy in detention. But the judge decided to let him out. Subsequently, another judge in California ordered his rearrest, and that's very unusual and procedurally sort of intriguing, but it seems clear that there's more information about Mr. Smirnov that we have not yet learned publicly. So let's cover some of those questions that Joyce left hanging. Um, I'm going to start with you, Barb, because you're our national security expert. And reading all this, I thought, is he a double agent? Is he a threat to the 2024 election? Was his hatred of President Biden the grounds for him doing these lies, or was he just a useful idiot for spreading Russian disinformation? And were the Republicans guilty? They were warned that everything that he said was unvetted. Will we ever know? I I don't know how much of this we will ever find out, but I think we'll find out a, a good bit, especially if this case goes to trial we will learn a little more about his history and who he is. You know, the charges themselves uh, provide a lot of detail about some of the reporting that he provided over the years, which uh, the FBI and 
David Weiss now say is completely false. And David Weiss, of course, you know, no friend of Hunter Biden, of, of Joe Biden. He's the one prosecuting Hunter Biden. He was the Trump U.S. attorney in Delaware, and he stayed on to be a special counsel now, prosecuting Hunter Biden for the tax violations and the gun violations. So I think he's got a lot of credibility. And, you know, it turns out Smirnov was reporting all this information about bribes paid by Burisma, the Ukrainian energy company, to Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. These references to, you know, Joe Biden as the big guy, all of that stuff that was the basis for the impeachment inquiry uh, into Joe Biden was all made up. So I don't know his motive, but we learned some new things in the filing the government filed in its effort to seek to detain Smirnov. And in that document, they disclosed that he had had contacts with four separate Russian intelligence officials. So those contacts suggest to me that he may not be a useful idiot. He may be a useful operative. It may be that he is here on behalf of Russia sharing this information to smear Joe Biden in an effort. You know, it all goes back to the things that Donald Trump says. I don't need a real investigation. I I, I don't need it to be successful. (laughs) I just need you to say there's an investigation and leave the rest to me. I mean, he did it with Zelensky. He did it with the Department of Justice. And now, you know, it seems like that same kind of thing. I just need enough information out there to dirty him up so that there'll be an investigation and then people know there's an investigation and they will assume from that that, well, he must have done something because they're investigating him and they impeached him. But um, I do think that the Republicans are at fault with this. I mean, Christopher Wray, the head of the FBI, appointed by Donald Trump, went in and said, this is not verified information. This is unconfirmed information, which meant they should not be relying on it and using it for purposes of an impeachment inquiry. And they did. They got redacted copies of this document. Chuck Grassley read it uh, on the, uh, the Senate floor that this was a basis for their investigation. And it turns out it was all made up. And what's so offensive about it now, Jill, is that rather than say, oh, my gosh, we were duped, you know, Republicans, we were so wrong. We're so sorry, Joe Biden. How dare we uh, besmirch your reputation with what now is clearly based solely on lies. All they did is they removed his name (laughs) from their impeachment records. Like, okay, this guy's bad, so uh, we'll keep going, but we're just going to take his name out of it. The whole thing is built on the house of cards, not just that it's unverified. We now know that it's false. So to be prosecuted for false information, that means David Weiss thinks he can prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt that what Smirnov was saying to the FBI was false and it was materially false, beyond a reasonable doubt. I love that they took it off in the dead of night from their website. (laughs) They didn't admit they were wrong. They just Mm. removed it. It was ridiculous. But speaking of ridiculous, Kim, how weird is it that he was arrested on arrival in Las Vegas at the international airport and then released by a federal magistrate where he lives in in Las Vegas? And then he was rearrested in Las Vegas on the same charges in his high-powered lawyer's offices on the same charges on a warrant from a California federal judge who's overseeing the perjury charges. How weird is that his, he was released to begin with, you know, and yeah. how weird is it that he's now maybe going to be back in, incarcerated? I mean, he should be back in custody. I was going to ask, honestly, when I saw that he had been released on bail in the first place, my first question for the three of y'all, the par- prosecutors, is how that possibly could have happened. I mean, this man has multiple passports. He has connections with Russia who can re 
who can, you know, resettle him, you know, disappear him to any parts of the world. And one of his passports is Israeli, which presents extradition issues. How did this magistrate let him? I, I take it. I get it. This magistrate may not have a lot of Russian spy cases uh, before him, but <laughs> that seemed like a slam dunk case to deny release in the first place. I, I'd love to hear what y'all think. I mean, when you look up poster child for federal detention in the dictionary, there is a picture of this guy <laughs> on that page. And I, I wrote about this case in Civil Discourse right as it was happening and just said, based on, on this evidence, hiding the money, foreign intelligence service connections, the Israeli passport, this guy gets detained every day of the week. And honestly, I've never been so surprised as I was about this detention order. Barb, do you think that I was overboard? No, I completely agree. All the reasons that Kim listed, Israeli citizenship, strong family connections in Israel, the ability to go get an Israeli passport, $6 million in cash and connections to uh, Russian intelligence. It seems highly, uh, a very high risk of flight, which is one of the bases for detaining someone pretrial. What is especially galling to me is ordinarily, when you lose, as the government, a detention hearing, and it happens sometimes, you seek detention, the magistrate judge rules against you, um, it is immediately appealable to the next level up, the district court judge, in this case, a judge sitting in California, the government appeals. And usually you then say, magistrate judge, please stay your order so that I can appeal and keep the person detained um, until we get to the next level. Because if you release this person while my appeal is pending and they flee, then it's over, right? Like you've effectively made me lose even my appeal. And so he didn't stay his order. That's the part that is especially galling. So he's out. And then we've got this bizarre second arrest, which I still don't quite understand. But I imagine we will learn about these sealed documents that will make clear exactly what's going on there. But I don't think we know yet what's going on there. Yeah. Warning to our listeners, we're waiting to hear if there will, these documents in California will be unsealed today. Uh, but there is a hearing scheduled for Monday. So for sure, we'll know more then. And the question is whether he will be released again after the hearing in California on his detention FrameBridge makes it fast, easy, and affordable to custom frame just about anything. They only use the highest quality materials, and every one-of-a-kind frame is handcrafted from their curated selection of frame styles. They even have design experts on hand to make it fun and easy to choose the perfect frame for your piece. We'd love to hear about what our listeners do when they connect with FrameBridge. FrameBridge will ship your finished frame directly to your house in days. You know, I use FrameBridge for my wedding photos, and they look so stunning. For a whole house look instead of a one-off, FrameBridge has a popular line of curated gallery walls, too. Each wall comes with a life-size hanging guide to make installation simple, foolproof, and fun. You can upgrade an entire space in minutes when you order online at FrameBridge.com. Here's how it works. You upload a digital photo for them to print in a frame or mail in your own art with the free secure prepaid packaging that they provide. Then FrameBridge custom frames your piece in their studio using the highest quality materials and ships it to your door for free. If you're the type who likes to shop in person, FrameBridge now has 21 retail stores in New York City, Boston, Philadelphia, D.C., Maryland, 
Virginia, Chicago, and Atlanta. When you visit a store, you can get one-on-one expert design advice and see their collection of frame styles in action. We love how FrameBridge's pricing is fair and transparent. It's simply based on the size of your piece, and they let you know exactly what you'll pay up front. There's also a happiness guarantee. So if you're not 100% happy with your piece for any reason, they'll make it right. FrameBridge makes it easy and fun to give incredible, personalized gifts that are perfect for anyone you care about. Join the satisfied customers who have framed over 2 million pieces and counting. Visit FrameBridge.com or a retail store to custom frame just about anything. Again, for the perfect frame for any piece, go to FrameBridge.com or look for the link in our show notes. Well, our next topic is about um, a a ruling in a Texas school where a court ruled against a high school student who challenged his school's dress code for boys that places limits on the length of male students' hair. The policy says boys' hair will not extend below the eyebrows, below the earlobes, or below the top of a t-shirt collar. The student is Daryl George, and he sued under the Texas Crown Act, which prohibits discrimination based on hairstyles that are commonly associated with a particular race or culture. Daryl said he had grown dreadlocks long to feel close to his ancestors. Jill, I want to ask you about this. What is a Crown Act and why is it that several states have passed these laws? So first of all, I want to point out that not only is Snickers trying to get into uh, Kim's face, her hair is below her eyebrows in the front. (laughs) (laughs) But it would be okay because she's not a boy, and this only applies to male students. Um, The Crown Act stands for Creating Respect and Open um, World for Natural Hair. And that is something that seems to me completely and clearly covers this student's, who, by the way, is a very good student. He is a ideal candidate for bringing this case because there's nothing in his background that is at all negative. He gets great grades. He's, he wants to be back in school to learn and to be with his friends. Um, and he very clearly says that he grew his locks because it's part of his tradition. But I also want to point out, and maybe we should post as part of our show notes, a picture of him. His hair is so tight and so neat that they had to stretch it to, if he undid his yeah. hair, yeah. then he would be violating the law. He His hair is above his shirt collar. It is above his eyebrows. It doesn't hang over his ears. It is completely neat and very attractive looking. So this seems to me a clear violation of the Crown Act, and it's only by the most ridiculous stretch that the court could have said, no, they could kick him out of school for this. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point, Jill, about the appearance of this. It it really suggests that it isn't so much about, you know, the length and the technical violation of this rule, but that this rule is really promulgated by, you know, white people who have common, you know, ideas about what is a neat haircut, uh, you know, what is what is acceptable, um, and and that reminds me, Kim, of something you wrote about natural hair when Katanji Brown Jackson first took her seat on the Supreme Court. 
you wrote about, this will be like not only the first time in history we've had an African-American woman on the bench, but the first time we've had someone with natural hair on the bench. And you wrote a really great column about that that I thought was very eye-opening to me. What's your perspective on this case? Yeah, it's really so important because for a long time, Black people were penalized, not just on the basis of race, but on the basis of our appearance if we did not conform with European beauty standards. There are so many Black women, both in the law, in media, these are both uh, industries that I know, but other industries too, who were told, hey, if you want to get ahead, you need to either chemically straighten your hair or in some way conceal the natural texture of your hair because you won't get hired. That's not quote unquote professional. Like this is the way our hair grows out of our heads. We are told that it's not professional, that it looks unkempt, that it looks dirty. So it was a moment when Katanji Brown Jackson uh, ascended to the U.S. Supreme Court with her sister locks, which is a style that goes back for generations and hundreds of hundreds of years in the African diaspora, right? Thousands of years in the um African diaspora, because that is such a breakthrough. I began, once I started uh, doing cable news commentary, I, you know, stopped relaxing my hair a long time ago, but occasionally I would, you know, blow it straight or something. I said I would never blow my hair straight on television because I believe that people across America needed to see how natural hair looked. They needed to see my hair in its natural state as it grows out of my head for that reason, we need to normalize that. And it has taken the Crown Act, uh, which was uh, the the uh, Uniform Crown Act, the, the Model Crown Act was crafted uh, by uh, a good friend of mine, um, Dean Angela Anwaji Willig at BU Law, um, who is an expert in this. And they, it passed in Massachusetts. But laws aren't any good if it's not enforced right? I mean, it's just like how I got secondarily searched by TSA because of my braids in Massachusetts. There was a Crown Act in Massachusetts, but it still didn't protect me. It's only as good as it is being enforced. And here in Texas, they have a Crown Act, but it still did not work in this case. You know, Maya Wiley has done the same thing. And on Twitter, at least a while ago, I don't know if she's even still on Twitter, there was a hashtag for Maya's hair. (laughs) Oh. <laughs> and it was because she wears her hair natural. And I, I mean, it's in the same way I ha- am known for my pins. She was known for her hairstyles. Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, these ideas of what is idealized beauty or appropriate standards or professional or business like. I can remember I once worked at a place where there was a dress code that said um, country club rules apply. And I remember like half of us or more than half of us. What does that even mean, Whoa. right? And, oh, and I know what the it leadership means. all knew like what that means. And other people were like, what on earth? And so, um, you know, I, I think that there is an idea out there that there is a certain standard set by white men uh, about what is and is not appropriate. And um, as we live in a more and more multicultural society, there is, you know, what is professional, what is neat, what is tidy, I suppose. But, um, you know, respecting differences and understanding. So I'm, I'm really glad to, to read Kim's piece on um, natural hair about Katanji Brown-Jackson and have this conversation. Well, Joyce, let me um, ask you a question, a civil rights question. Daryl George failed to succeed in Texas courts, but he's also filed a federal civil rights case against his school district. 
What do you think about that suit? Do you think it will succeed? I, I don't really know under what theory he would prevail because um, there's not a federal crown act, but I guess a, a discrimination in school uh, basis for it. So what do you think it would be the theory there and, and might how might he prevail? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. It's an uphill battle, right? It would have to be some theory that says that the act itself was being applied in a discriminatory way. Um, and you know, if there is a theme for today's show, I think it's something about laws that are intended to do something good, but end up doing things that are bad, right? You're supposed to be protecting life, but you end up harming women. You're supposed to be making schools safer and more effective. And instead, you take this really nice kid and you, you kick him out of school because of his hair. I have to say, I find this case to be among the more annoying situations that we've discussed. And, you know, it's really interesting. Jill started by talking about his appearance, and I wanted to raise that, too. This is his hair is is very nicely done. It's not below his eyebrows. That's one of the standards for the school's rules. Although it's long, as Jill pointed out, it's done up. It's neat. He's not a health hazard. He's not a distraction hazard. It is simply his personal form of expression. Um, and it's interesting to note that the superintendent of schools in Barbara Hills, where he goes to school, said he said this. He said the hair length of male students is only constitutionally protected for Native American students. So I guess that's where they intend to hang yeah. their hat for yeah. the federal case. I think that there's some narrow area for common sense civil rights litigation here, but he will have to, I think, establish that his hairstyle is a cultural prerogative, not a personal choice, or craft together something that talks about intentional discrimination in the way that this was enforced as against him. I wish him the best of luck. I hope he succeeds. You know, he will bear the burden of, of proof in the federal case. But you don't have to be a lawyer to look at this and just say something ain't right here. And that's something that ain't right. It's racist motivation for doing this. And that's right. And that's why we need a federal crown act. That's precisely why we need a federal Amen. crown act, because this whole idea is assimilation, right? You're okay in this culture if you assimilate to mm -hmm. the European-centric culture. And that's yeah. exactly what this school is doing. They're doing it intentionally. And I hope that in the end he wins. Love is in the air this month, so why not show some love to your skin? Most skincare routines only deliver superficial results, but thanks to today's sponsor, One Skin, you get a scientifically proven treatment that improves the appearance and health of your skin at the cellular level. The secret is One Skin's proprietary OS1 peptide. It's the first ingredient scientifically proven to reduce the buildup of sentient cells, aka zombie cells, that contribute to skin aging. Fewer zombie cells means healthier, younger-looking skin with fewer lines and wrinkles, reduced age spots, and a stronger natural barrier. It's so important this time of year. Your skin does so much for you. Return the favor with One Skin. For a limited time, our listeners will get an exclusive 15% off their first OneSkin purchase using the code SISTERS. When you check out at oneskin.co, invest in the health and longevity of your skin with OneSkin. I have to tell you, I've said it before, but the travel bundle is my absolute favorite companion wherever I am. I'm just re getting ready to go on a week-long trip with um, Barb McQuaid and some of our friends. Barb and I will be on stage together um, talking about her book, 
which is releasing next week when we are in San Francisco together. You know I've got my one skin bundle already packed to go with me. The regimen works fast, it's really easy, and the formula feels amazing to apply on my face and neck. Now I never go anywhere without one skin. Really, I don't. And we know you'll love it too. Well, now I'm going to have to up my game and wear my one skin. (laughs) One skin is more than skin care. It's about skin longevity, targeting the root causes of aging to help you look and feel your best at every age. Get started today with 15% off using code SISTERS at oneskin.co. That's 15% off at oneskin.co with code SISTERS. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. It's time to expect more from your skincare routine. Invest in the health of your skin with OneSkin. You can also find the link in the show notes. Now we have come to what is truly our favorite part of the show, your questions. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlawpoliticon.com or tag us uh, on threads or X or wherever you can tag us. And if we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye out on your feeds throughout the week where we answer questions when we see them and when we can. So our first question of this podcast comes from Bob, who asks, I keep hearing in the news and in podcasts the word receipts in the context of politics and or law. What does that term mean? Barb, I know what the term receipts means in the African-American vernacular, but you tell us your legal definition of Well, I'll tell you what my take on it. No, (laughs) I I think it has become a phrase that we hear used a lot. Um, What it really means, I think, is evidence. And so, uh, you know, you'll hear that, um, for example, um, Attorney General Letitia James in the New York case Um, She brought the receipts. People have said that in the media. And what that means is she's not just alleging that Donald Trump uh, had ill-gotten gain for these buildings. She's got documents. She has evaluations of these buildings. She's got representations in um, loan documents, other financial disclosure documents where they list what they believe to be the fair market value. And then in another document where they've got a different number. So she is supporting her claims with documentation and evidence. And so they aren't really like the receipt that you might get from CVS, you know, that long list of things that has uh, the- Very the, long. The, yeah, the items that you purchased <laughs> and the coupon for next time and the survey about the service, all those kinds of things. But it's kind of the same thing, right? It is evidence of the numbers you, or, or the, the claim that you are making. So a little bit of a slang term, uh, you know, probably not appropriate to use it in court. You would probably use the term evidence, but I think it's uh, it's a way to- uh, share with a lay audience uh, the evidence. You know, you might bring your receipt to show that uh, you know you were charged twice for that uh, that burger on your on your uh, restaurant bill. And it ha- comes with a great meme from the original Alexis Colby uh, showing receipts on. If people on social media know exactly what I'm talking about. Our next question comes from Michelle, who asks, because Trump was found guilty of sexual assault, does that mean wherever he lives or moves uh, for his neighbors and area schools, will they be notified that he is a sexual predator living in the neighborhood? Joyce, what's the answer? Yeah, this is a really great question. It's an important one. And I've heard some 
um, different sort of takes on this. So I'm glad to have the, the opportunity to clarify. Trump was not convicted in a criminal case of sexual assault. He was found liable, responsible for defamation involving a sexual assault in a civil case. So while he owes that civil judgment to E. Jean Carroll, there's no criminal conviction. He will not have to register under any of these acts. All right. And our final question comes from Ryan in Elwood City, Pennsylvania, who asks, if SCOTUS decides that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment doesn't apply in this case, then when will it apply? Hypothetically, it sounds like he's asking, if this ain't it, what is it, Jill? What do you think? So, of course, I do think this is it and that they court should find that he is barred from the uh, ballot and barred from holding office. I think it's clear that every element of the language of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is met. I think that depending on what out they take and how they twist this, they wouldn't be able to twist it if it was a senator or a member of the House who was convicted of the actual crime of uh, insurrection. That would be absolutely a slam dunk. But I don't think any of that is called for by the 14th Amendment. I don't think you have to be a senator or a member of the House. I don't think that the president is exempt from it. He is an officer. He took an oath to support by saying that he would defend, protect, and preserve the Constitution. And there's no call for the Congress to do something to intervene to make this happen. So, I I mean, I think it should be the um, decision of the Supreme Court to bar him from holding office, but at least there would be hope. Maybe some of the people who helped this insurrection happen, you know who I'm talking about, um, maybe they can be charged with insurrection and then they could be barred from office. Well, thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Jill Weinbanks, Joyce Fans, Barb McQuaid, and me, Kim Atkins-Store. Remember to send your questions in for next week's show by email at sistersinlaw at politicon.com. You can also tag us at Hashtag Sisters in Law wherever you get your socials. And remember, if you want to snag Hashtag Sisters in Law loot, Go ahead and do it right now. Go to politicon.com slash merch for your mugs, your t-shirts, your hoodies, whatever you need. We got it for you. And plus, show some love for this week's sponsors, you guys. Thrive, Cosmetics, Calm, Framebridge, and One Skin. We love being able to bring you this show uh, as easily as we can with no paywall or anything. And our sponsors are the reasons that we can. So show them a lot of love. And we love them too. And follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. And give us a five star review because you know what? There are actually people who still don't listen to this podcast. And your five stars help them find it. So help these folks, right? See you next week for another episode, hashtag sistersinlaw. Y'all, I got to tell my family soon that we're coming to Detroit on tour. Like, when are we going to be able to announce this? I hope soon because I keep getting a lot of questions about when people can get tickets in Chicago and we're not supposed to say anything yet. 
No, and I really want to know about Boston because, you know, I'm a big baseball fan and I'm hoping we can find a date that will coincide with a Red Sox game. You know, I'll go see that game with you. I love the Sox. I'm a longtime fan from when I was in college. So you might drag me out to the ball game. I mean, Chicago, Detroit, Boston. I'm so looking forward to this. I can't wait till we get to make the formal announcement. Best ballpark is Wrigley Field. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.